The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Daniel chapter 2. We are in our, our fourth week of teaching through the book of Daniel. Uh, this book of the Bible contains the record of God's faithfulness to his people in the presence of his discipline in their lives. Matter of fact, the books of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Esther, Ezekiel, and Daniel all detail the faithful love of God towards Israel while they are under his discipline in exile. That even in that place, God is faithfully speaking, even in that place, God is teaching and instructing and leading and comforting his people even while they sit under his disciplinary action. Now, in addition to that, though these books, uh, through these books of the Bible, we also get a lens through which we can see that God has a heart for the nations as well. In fact, uh, just last week, Paul walked us through the first part of, of Daniel chapter 2, and contained in those verses is the story of this pagan king, a, a king called Nebuchadnezzar, who has no regard for the God of the Hebrews. Uh, one night, Nebuchadnezzar is asleep in his room and he has this dream. And, and it's a dream that's not like other dreams that are, that are just sort of strange and have no significance. No, there's something about this dream that's unique. Something that is, that is deeply troubling to Nebuchadnezzar. And it's something so deeply troubling that he becomes obsessed with trying to figure it out. Like, what, what is this dream? What is the meaning of this dream? His response to this dream, in fact, is found for us in chapter 2, verse 1, where it says that Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, his spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. You see, for Nebuchadnezzar and for us... This is a dream that is not just a dream. It is the ultimate reality. And, and Nebuchadnezzar could feel the weight of that as he encountered this dream. He could feel the, the heaviness. Like there's something about this that is important for me to know. There's something about this that I need to understand. And, and, and he's so distressed by it that he ultimately calls together all of his wise men, his magicians, his enchanters, his sorcerers, and the Chaldeans. And he asks them to give him the dream and the interpretation of the dream. Well, they say, hey, no, no problem. Nebuchadnezzar, you tell us what the dream is, we'll tell you what the interpretation is. He says, no, 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 we're not doing it like that. That's not how this works. You tell me the dream and its interpretation, and if you can't do that, I'll have you killed, tearing you apart limb from limb. If you can give me the dream and its interpretation, on the other hand, I'll, I'll, I'll reward you and, and I'll give you great honor. But if you can't, I'm going to pull you apart piece by piece. Well, this moment sets into motion a series of events that brings us to the place where we are now in the book of Daniel. 
King Nebuchadnezzar is poised at this moment in our story to kill all of the wise men, including Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his his three buddies. And when Daniel finds out the reason uh, from Arioch, which was the, the king's captain that was sent to execute uh, all, of the, all of the magicians and all of the wise men in, in Babylon, Daniel immediately asks for an appointment with the king. And it's his intention. He, he says, give me this appointment so that I can give you the interpretation of the dream. Now, at this point, mind you, Daniel doesn't have the interpretation of the dream. He just gets an appointment on the books. Like, don't kill us all yet. Let me, let me set an appointment with you and I'm going to give you the interpretation of the dream. Then he goes home and he sees his three buddies and he's like, hey guys, we need to pray, right? Like we need to get after this and, and pray for interpretation. As a matter of fact, in verse 18, he says this, seek mercy from the God of heaven. I love that. Seek mercy from the God of heaven. Well, God did answer the prayer of Daniel and his friends. And shows the dream and gives the interpretation before the appointed meeting with Nebuchadnezzar. And when the king asks Daniel, he says to him, are you able to make known to me the dream and its interpretation? Daniel responded by saying, nope. I can't. There isn't a man alive that can do that. But, he says, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries and has made known what will be in the latter days. And so begins our text as we finish out Daniel chapter 2, beginning there in verse 31. Now, uh, our text really will have three movements that I would like to highlight or draw your attention to today. I've titled the message today, A Dream That's Not a Dream. A dream that's not a dream. Verses 31 through 49 of Daniel 2. So in verses 31 to 35, what the dream contained. In verses 36 to 45, what the dream meant. In verses 46 to 49, what the dream taught. So what the dream contained, what the dream meant, and what the dream taught. Let's begin by reading Verses 31 to 35, as Daniel speaks, You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found." But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled up the whole earth. So this is the 
This is the mysterious dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. This is divinely being revealed to Daniel and now to Nebuchadnezzar. This is the dream that was so troubling to him. Now there's a little debate as to whether or not Nebuchadnezzar knew the dream already and just didn't trust his wise men. So he was putting a test there for authenticity by saying you have to tell me the dream and its interpretation so that he would know that it was a divine revelation. Or whether or not he forgot the content of the dream, was just troubled when he woke up and knew that it was significant, knew that it was important. But regardless of that, whether he himself forgot the contents of the dream or whether or not it was something that he had put out as a test, God revealed the content to Daniel supernaturally. A statue with a head of gold, chest and arms of silver, middle and thighs of bronze, legs of iron, feet of iron mixed with clay. And then in his dream, a stone that was uncut by human hands comes flying in and strikes the feet of iron mixed with clay, which caused all the parts of the statue to be shattered in pieces. And they were reduced to something so insignificant so small that they blew away like chaff in the wind. Matter of fact, I want you to take notice of of, of verse 35. Notice what it says there. It says, not a trace of them could be found, but the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So this stone takes the place of all the parts of the statue and then grows up into this giant mountain that fills up the whole earth. Now, I'm not going to give any interpretation right now. I just want us to think about and notice the details, the content of these verses. What a strange dream. Have you ever had a moment where you realized that there was something supernatural at play? Perhaps a moment where you're sitting in church like this and as the pastor is speaking, it's as though he has listened to your conversations from the previous week or knows the secret details of your life and it's as though he has singled out you specifically and is speaking directly to you. You ever had one of those moments? Or you're in consternation over something and there's something that's happening in your life that's very troubling and you just want God to give you wisdom and you've been praying and you hear nothing, you hear nothing then all of a sudden a song comes on the radio and the lyrics from the song speak directly to something that you're going through. Or, or you're reading your Bible and, and all of a sudden it's like the words jump up off the page and God is specifically detailing for you instruction and wisdom that you need for that moment at that time. Have you ever had a moment like that? Well, for Nebuchadnezzar, this is that kind of profound moment. It's one in which he is confronted with the reality that something supernatural is at play. God has just revealed to him a dream that no one else could possibly know. And And he's speaking through a human, through a man, Daniel, and giving this dream that was locked away in the heart and mind of Nebuchadnezzar alone. This, this is a holy moment. And Daniel now has the full and undivided attention of the king of Babylon. 
as he lays out this dream, as soon as he begins speaking, Nebuchadnezzar's like, whoa, this is the dream. It's exactly what I saw. Now, there's a few things that I want to be able to draw your attention to as it relates to the content of the dream itself. These details are meaningful, and they help us to get to the profoundness of the picture that is being given to to Nebuchadnezzar. So the first thing I want you to take note of is from verse 31. I want you to notice the effect of the statue. The effect of the statue. It appears bright and shining in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. This this shininess makes it easy to stare at. It, it, It garners his attention. It draws his focus in. But it also has this other effect on on him. In verse 31, it tells us it also makes him afraid. There's something about this statue that causes fear in the heart of the king. As he's looking at it, he sees this statue. It's got multiple layers of of, uh, materials. and, and, And he's looking at it. It's bright. It's shining. It's got all of his attention. But it also terrifies him in some way. I also want you to take note of the oneness of the statue from verses 32 to 33. I want you to notice that the statue is all one image. It's the image of a man. Now, whatever the statue represents in the differing elements between gold and silver and bronze and so forth, As a whole, it represents something to do with man. It's one unified system with different expressions or components, but as a whole, it represents a oneness. It represents humanity or mankind or, or a man in particular. The different parts are a part of a whole concept that is being communicated through the dream. Log that away in the back of your mind. Notice not only the effect of the statue and the oneness of the statue, but also notice the decay of the statue. When when Nebuchadnezzar sees this this statue, he sees that the head is made of gold, which is the most valuable. It is one unit. This head is one unit, and it's heavy. It's got weight. And then... You have chest and arms that are made of silver, which is less valuable than the gold. And it is no longer uh, one unit as a whole, but it's one unit that's split into two parts. And it's lighter than the, the head of gold. Then comes the abdomen and thighs made of bronze, even less valuable. One unit and two parts, and it's even lighter. Then the lower legs of iron, still less valuable, and and two parts. Then you have the feet and the toes of iron mixed with clay, which is the least valuable. And it's two parts and ten segments if you count the toes. And it's the most corrupt. You see, the statue gets less valuable and less substantive and less stable the further down the statue that you go. It gets more corrupt as you near the feet. This is a, 
this is a very interesting thing. So as, as Nebuchadnezzar is looking at the statue, he's like, man, gold, obviously, most value, most permanent. By the time you, you scan to the bottom of the statue, less permanent, less valuable, less stable, and destined to fall apart. Whatever this image of the man is, it doesn't look like it's meant to last. It doesn't look like it's eternal because with time, you know that the feet of the statue are going to wear away. Even with, apart from the divine influence of this rock that comes in, the system or this image is destined to fall and to crumble because of the foundation that it's standing upon. So, I want you to notice also not only the effect of the statue, the oneness of the statue, and the decay of the statue, but also notice the instability of the statue. Its feet are not stable because it's iron mixed with clay. Makes it vulnerable to toppling. Not only that, but the whole statue gives the impression that, that it's stable and strong with all of the elements up above, but it's standing, it's resting upon this foundation so that when it gets hit by, by a stone, its pieces become so small that they get blown away like chaff in the wind. Paul reminded me of, of the book of James this last week as we were going through this and, and how we're encouraged there to be reminded that life is but a vapor. It's here one moment and it's gone the next. The things that we think are so stable are actually temporary. The things that are unseen are eternal and we're supposed to put our hope in the things that are eternal. You know, chaff is, is, is the unusable husk of the grain in harvest. And oftentimes it was, it was collected when they would thresh the, the grain on the threshing floor. The chaff would be collected for starting fires in ancient times. It was like a really light rice paper. It was highly flammable. It could easily be blown away with the wind. And, and, and that is what the statue is ultimately reduced to. When the stone hits it, it falls apart. And it, what seems so stable becomes like paper and it just blows away. Gone. And the next thing I would like you to notice, again, without any interpretation here, just observing the story, is I want you to notice the power of the rock. This stone has not been cut by human hands. In other words, this is a heavenly rock and is sent from a divine source apart from human influence. It strikes the feet of the statue, but uh, it obliterates all of the parts of the statue altogether. So even though it hits the feet, the whole statue is, is busted into pieces and blows away like the chaff of the wind. But not only does it destroy the other parts of the statue, but it then also replaces them. The rock crashes into the place where the statue stood, sort of leaves this crater that's there, and the rock is there, and then all of a sudden the rock begins to grow. And it grows into a giant mountain so big that it fills up the earth. It takes up more space than the statue ever did. It consumes the whole of the earth. Now all of these details 
take on special significance when we get to the next section, when we look at what the dream meant. Now the next verses tell us Daniel's interpretation of the dream, so would you look with me at verses 36 to 45, and let's read. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of men, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. Okay, so we know what the head of gold is. That's Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom. And verse 39, another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you and yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom strong as iron because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things and and like iron that crushes it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes partly of of, of potter's clay and partly of iron. It shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all of these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation is sure. (laughs) Wow. Here's the interpretation of the dream. Your kingdom is not the last. Matter of fact, it's going to be replaced by one that's of lesser quality. And then that one will be replaced. And then that one will be replaced. And then ultimately what will happen is the kingdom of God will replace all the kingdoms of the earth. And this interpretation, he says, is sure. Can't be changed. This is what God says is going to happen. Now, as Daniel gives this interpretation, there are literal volumes that have been written trying to tease out every nuance from these verses. And we don't have time to run every single rabbit trail or to pull every nuance from this passage, but there are some dominant themes that I think are major points that I'd like for us to focus our attention on because I believe that they are the strongest themes from this passage. The first one that I want want us to think about this morning is from verses 36 to 38. Would you notice the peak of earthly kingdoms in verses 36 to 38? 
the peak of earthly kingdoms. Remember how the statue was bright and shiny, but it also caused fear? You know, Nebuchadnezzar was obsessed with empire. He was obsessed particularly with his empire and spreading its influence. He, it's all that he thought about. He, he, he launched great building campaigns. He assigned uh, rulers for his conquered territories and he built monuments to his victories. He was obsessed with it. But as with any person who has a, a great amount of influence and, and, and power in the world... This shiny thing that he was consumed with was also the, the cause of constant fear and anxiety because what you strive to attain, you must also strive to maintain. When you are working really hard to like promote everything and make it all happen and make your kingdom big, man, you are in the driver's seat. And you're responsible to make sure that it it perpetuates, that it keeps happening. You're holding all of the pieces and that's how Nebuchadnezzar felt. No doubt Nebuchadnezzar constantly worried about his kingdom, his significance, his legacy, his control, his plans, his decisions, his future. Constantly concerned with, with building great monuments. This was the great motivation for his building campaigns. For the monuments that he built. For, for the organization of his kingdom that extended the influence of Babylon throughout the world. Constantly consumed with this shiny object of his own kingdom, of his own making. And yet fearful that it won't last. Fearful that it won't remain. In verses, verses 36 to 38, Daniel makes clear that the head of gold is the Babylonian empire under Nebuchadnezzar. And though Nebuchadnezzar thought that he obtained this by his great might and by the blessing of his false gods, the God of heaven is now reminding Nebuchadnezzar that he is the one who gave it to him. That it didn't come from his false gods, but it came by permission from the Lord. His legacy, his significance, his control, and future are not at all in his hands. They are in the hands of the Lord. Notice what what verses 37 and 38 say. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them, you are the head of gold. How did you get there? God gave it to you. That's how you got there. Now it's worth noting that both Daniel and Ezekiel referred to Nebuchadnezzar as the king of kings. In Ezekiel 26, 7, Ezekiel uses the exact same phrase. Nonetheless, as, as, as Daniel reveals here, the God of heavens had given this authority to this mighty monarch had given this position to him. The king ruled, but he ruled under the authority of a higher and infinitely more powerful ruler. The true king of kings and the true lord of lords. I love what James Boyce in his commentary says about this. Let me, let me just read this to you. He says, Babylon was the world empire of the time. But in the biblical perspective, Babylon also 
is also the first and prototype of all world empires. The Bible introduces Babylon in the early chapters of Genesis as the center of Nimrod's empire in Genesis chapter 10, verses 8 to 12. The place where men first banded together against God who then scattered them by the confusion of their language. Apparently Babylon had always been great, but it had risen to heights of previously unmatched magnificence under Nebuchadnezzar. It was there, for example, that the famous Hanging Gardens, one of the wonders of the ancient world, were located. But, Boyce says, this was God's doing and not Nebuchadnezzar's. Remember how we noticed earlier that the statue had separate parts? but represented a whole picture of mankind or humanity? Well, well, Daniel here clarifies that these various parts of the whole uh, are earthly kingdoms or empires, and they are the kingdoms of man. Each section is a part of a whole system, and that, that is the system of the kingdom of man. You know, in the New Testament, the 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 writers of the New Testament pick up on a similar theme and, and they refer to this system that is man's kingdom as the world. The world. It is man's rule rejecting God's rule. Seeking to establish their own. That's the world's system. You can have it now. You get what you want. You're in charge. You're in control. You don't have to submit to any authority. You don't have to be responsible for anything. That is the world's paradigm. God's paradigm is totally different. You are under authority. You are creature, not creator. And you will give an account for your life. Totally different systems of thought. As a matter of fact, the, the book of Revelation has a name for it, this same system. Do you know what the book of Revelation calls this same system? Babylon. Calls it Babylon. A way of living and a system of thinking that finds its origins in the original Babylon and before that, you can trace it all the way back to the Garden of Eden. A system that says we don't need God's authority over our lives, we can establish our own We can be like God in our own strength. And in Revelation, the power behind this kingdom called Babylon is a figure that the book of Revelation in chapter 12 verse 9 calls the great dragon, the ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan. He's the one who rules over this system of thinking, this world system, this Babylon. And in the end of the book of Revelation, the dragon's Babylonian system, this beastly author- and this beastly authority that rules it, and the false prophet that promotes it, are all judged by God and destroyed with finality. This worldly system, which is run by Satan, is destined to come toppling down. That's the message of the Bible. It's all going to perish it's temporary it won't last put your hope in the things that are eternal it took considerable courage if you think about it for Daniel now to come with this interpretation 
to tell the most powerful ruler of his time that he was responsible to God for the authority that was given to him. God had given Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty, symbolized by the head of the statue, power, when you think about the, the head's weight and strength, it's in control of the body and glory, its value is gold. The head of gold aptly described Nebuchadnezzar. It also symbolized the kingdom over which he ruled. And and during the time of Nebuchadnezzar, the empire of Babylon is at its peak. And it's destined, according to God, according to what God reveals in this vision, it is destined to only decay from here. It's just going to decay into something worse and worse with subsequent kingdoms that come after it. Matter of fact, the the next verses spell it out in more detail. Notice the perishing of earthly kingdoms in verses 39 to 43 when it says, starting out, another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you and yet a third kingdom of bronze shall rule over the earth and then there will be a fourth kingdom strong as iron because it breaks into pieces and shatters all things. Remember how we noticed that the statue was in a state of decay? The closer you get to the bottom, the worse the condition is. The the less wealth it has, the less power and integrity it has. And you can see that Daniel describes the subsequent kingdoms that come after Babylon as being inferior. They are lesser kingdoms. Now, Nebuchadnezzar ruled for about 45 years. That's it. And his empire really only lasted another 21 years from this point. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar's father, Nabopolassar, founded the revived Babylonian Empire in 627 BC. And it fell to the Medo-Persians in 539 BC. So the entirety of the Babylonian rule was only 88 years. That's it. And and the world kingdom that succeeded the Medo-Persians was the Greek empire under Alexander the Great and its territory was even larger than that of Medo-Persia those that conquered Babylon Uh, but Greece dominated the ancient cradle of civilization from 331 BC to 31 BC so uh, about 300 years it lasted longer than either Babylon or uh, the Medo-Persian empire However, uh, after Alexander the Great died in 323 BC, the empire split into four parts and there was a a battle between each of his generals. And so this battle that took place gave each piece of the Grecian empire to uh, the different generals. Antipater ruled Macedon, Greece. Uh, Lysimachus governed Thrace, Asia Minor. Seleucus uh, headed Asia, and, and Ptolemy reigned over Egypt, Cyrenaceia, and Palestine. And so as a result, Greece lacked the unified ability and strength to extend its rule and influence over people. It spread its language and those kinds of things, but it could never really hold on to its empire very well. There was constant conflict and constant internal divisions that were happening continually and so it eventually was also replaced it was replaced by the roman empire now rome defeated the last vestige of the greek empire in 31 bc and ruled for hundreds of years until about 476 
in the Western Roman Empire and in, until about 1453 in the Eastern Roman Empire. And so you see the two divisions between the legs, East and West Roman Empires, there between the two. Now the Eastern and Western divisions of this empire crushed all opposition. They were brutal. They, they, they came in without mercy. They were known for exercising their power, but they were a lesser authoritarian rule than even Babylon. They had mixtures of Greek influence and they constantly were overturning in power all of their leadership and having to reorganize the entirety of Rome. So the Roman Empire embraced a much wider territory than uh, in, in which the Western division became fully as strong as the Eastern. Uh, but there, there are these four kingdoms that now come underneath the, the, the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar and the kingdom of Babylon. Each of them have their own strength, their own ability, but they're all destined to crumble and fall apart. Now, what's so interesting about this is Daniel is telling Nebuchadnezzar what is going to happen for the next 600 years of history. And, and he is proclaiming what will take place? I love in, in the book of Isaiah, God challenges the, the, the other false gods. He says, hey, uh, go ahead. Tell us what's going to happen in the future if you guys have all this power. Tell us what's, what's going to happen in Isaiah 41. This is the test of your authority, you false gods, you demonic entities. Tell me the future. Tell me what's going to happen. I'll tell you what's going to happen. I'll tell you till the end of the age what is going to happen. Now, there's virtually no debate about the four kingdoms that comprise the upper portions of the, of the state of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. The statue, excuse me, of, of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Um, all of the church fathers, Irenaeus, Hippolytus, um, uh, Eusebius, all agree that these are the, the four empires. That it starts with, the, with Babylon, it goes to the Medo-Persians, moves to the Greeks, and then to the Romans. But the real debate comes in among authors and theologians, thinkers. It, it, it centers around the descriptions of the feet. And so I, I want to, you know, what's happening there with the, the, the feet of iron mixed with clay? And so I want to give you three different perspectives on how people understand that. What is happening in the bottom of the Roman iron empire, there are these feet of iron mixed with clay. And so some people look at that and they say, okay, what is that kingdom? What is that? Well, option A is this. Some see this as the eventual historic decline of the Roman Empire and the way that it fell into disrepair. It starts out strong, but eventually it just begins to disintegrate as time goes on. So that's one way that people look at the, the, the feet of iron mixed with clay. Option B, some see this as a future federation with remnants of Roman authoritarian rule and democratic rule, or, or they will say maybe it's not so much political, maybe it's religious. It's the, the cleaving together of religious values with the state. And, and so they would see this as a, a future uh, federation under Roman rule that is married together either politically or religiously, but it doesn't cleave together and there's a lot of constant infighting. It's very unstable. Option C, and this is probably what most of you have heard, is that this is a literal future federation of 10 nations under the rule of some future king 
It is interesting to note, though, that ten, the, the number 10 is never mentioned in our text today. It only talks about the feet mixed up and the toes, but it never uh, gives that number. And though, though it's never mentioned in the text, some people look at this and they say that there is a future confederation of nations that don't get along in the last days and that the future wicked ruler representative of the dragon, the one they call the beast, the one who is also called the Antichrist, will rule over the world in that time. And so they see it as a future event. Now, here's, here's what I want to say. One of the hazards of being curious with a the Bible is this. Sometimes it can cause you to focus on what is unclear rather than what is clear. Many respected commentaries and Bible teachers write abundantly on the issue of the toes from our text today. The entire volume. As a matter of fact, some of the best sellers in Christendom have been entire books dedicated to the toes of the statue. But the Bible doesn't really give us a whole lot of clarity on the toes. We could speculate, we can read into a lot of that, but we need to be really careful to focus on what is clear rather than what is unclear. And matter of fact, if you if you are curious about those things, their content, the content from these authors can be found everywhere and it's free online and you could spend a million years reading all of it because it's mass produced. But I don't think that's the focal point of our passage. I don't think that's the focal point of the text. It seems to me that the stone is actually the focal point. And an effort to focus our attention on what is clear rather than what is unclear, let's consider from verses 44 to 45, the power of God's kingdom. The power of God's kingdom. Daniel makes clear what happens to the statue and to all the kingdoms that it represents. In verse 44, and in those days, the, uh, in, and in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. To begin with, uh, the, the mention of the rock un- unveils a rich load of, of biblical imagery. Uh, the first reference to this idea of the rock or the stone comes to us actually from Psalm 118, verse 22. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. And there's this great tradition of where that psalm finds its origin of, of how when the, the temple of Solomon was built, it was quarried in stones that were in, in a in a quarry that was miles away from the temple itself and so they would mark the stones for where they were supposed to be placed well these stones would get shipped from miles away some of them 40 foot long eight foot wide six foot high i mean massive massive stones and they would get them from this quarry miles away and bring them up the hill to jerusalem for the temple mount It was an incredible feat, but you had to have high levels of organization. And so you would mark the stones and, and the people who would receive the stones at the end of their journey would know where to place them based on the markings of the stone. Well, apparently one of those stones got rejected and people didn't know what to do with it. And so they just kind of got pushed off to the side and everybody forgot about where that stone should be. And then they were like, Hey, where's the capstone? 
Where, where's, the, where's the really important cornerstone that's supposed to be here? And, and they sent words back to the quarry and said, hey, you guys didn't give us the capstone. They said, yeah, we did. We sent it to you months ago. And then they, they wandered out through the tall grass and they go, oh, here it is. It's right here. The, the, the stone that the builders rejected has become the, the capstone, right? You had it all along. It was right there in your midst and you never saw it. It was right there. Do you get the image? When Christ arrived, he's right there in their midst. They didn't see it. It's the stone which the builders rejected. And so in the New Testament, that psalm gets quoted to tell the story of Jesus. To remind us that that they didn't see it, but he was right there all along. He was the capstone. He was the foundation stone. It was Christ all along. Peter in the New Testament uh, quotes from Isaiah 8.14 and some other passages. It says, see, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone, a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. If you reject the cornerstone, you're destined to trip over it the rest of your life. And you do that to your own destruction. Well, these passages that are spread throughout the Old and New Testament tell us that this stone then is Jesus and his kingdom. That the mountain that grows from this stone is the kingdom of Christ. And it will fill up the earth and it will replace all of the kingdoms of the world. And that is what this dream means. The simple interpretation is that the kingdom of this divine rock Christ will replace all the kingdoms of the earth. And this is so apparent that, that there, there was this guy, Josephus, who was a, a, a Jewish historian under Roman rule. He, he wouldn't even write down the interpretation of this because he knew that the stone struck during Roman rule. And he was concerned about his own life if he interpreted this prophecy. Isn't that interesting? Now I want you to consider for a moment, imagine for a moment that you're Nebuchadnezzar. You're having this supernatural moment with Daniel, God's representative. He's telling you this dream that's unknown, the interpretation of the dream. And and, and you're like tuned in going, whoa, this is heavy. He knows everything about this. And then the message comes, your your kingdom is not the last kingdom and it's going to fall apart and it's going to perish and it's going to blow away like chaff in the wind. So there's the meaning of your dream. Nebuchadnezzar. Man. How incredible of a moment for Daniel to stand before this king and tell him, your kingdom will not last. Consider for a moment that this is actually the meaning of basically every sermon that you hear at Heritage. Don't put your hope in the things that perish. The only investments that do not perish are the ones made where moth and rust can't destroy them. Matter of fact, Paul, last week in the Heritage Connection, the email that gets sent out to everybody who's in our database, he asked this question, how might the destruction of all earthly kingdoms, 
humanity's self-rule, and the establishment of the heavenly kingdom, God's eternal rule, influence the way that you see the world today? How, how, how does that influence the way that you see the world? When you realize it's all going away. All of it. Every bit of it. There is only one eternal kingdom. There is only one eternal king. How does that influence the way that you live in today's world? Does it impact where you make your investments or how you spend your time or whether or not the house you buy is yours? Whether or not it's used for God's glory? Does it affect the way you parent? Does it affect the way that you are a spouse? The way you date? Does it affect the moral choices you make? How you steward your resources? It ought to. It ought to. C.T. Studd wrote a poem I don't have time to read the entirety of it. I, I, I would hope that I would. But the tagline for this poem says this, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Give me, Father, a purpose deep in joy or sorrow, thy word to keep, faithful and true, whatever the strife pleasing thee in my daily life. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Nebuchadnezzar is being confronted with the reality. All of his efforts will come to naught. They'll all perish. Lastly, I want you to take a look at what the dream taught in verses 46 to 49. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering, an incense, be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly, your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. And so Daniel made a request to the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained in the king's court. In the end of this situation, Daniel... A humble Israelite boy who was taken captive to Babylon stands in the presence of the king of Babylon, his captor, while the king of Babylon falls on his face and asks that incense and offerings be made to Daniel. It's an incredible scene. Imagine that scene for just a moment. Imagine Daniel, this, this teenage boy is standing there while the king of Babylon is falling down at his face, at, at, at his feet, paying homage to him. It's incredible. Listen to the words of Nebuchadnezzar. Truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries for you have made, you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then as a bonus, Daniel is rewarded and put into a position of great authority over the whole province of Babylon. And from this position, he'll be able to ensure that the other captives who are carried away to Babylon will be cared for. 
from this position, he will spread the influence of God among Babylon. So much so, by the way, that the wise men that show up at the birth of Jesus following the star, guess where they got that information? The wise men of Babylon. Same group. Daniel lays that foundation for hundreds of years. As is the case with every situation, God is working in multiple directions here. God is teaching Daniel something. What is he teaching Daniel? He's teaching him that he's the king of kings and he's the Lord of lords. You can put your hope in him. And he's teaching the exiles something through the interpretation of this dream. What's he teaching the exiles? That God is for us. Even in exile, he's, he's leading, he's directing, he's, he's putting people in a position of authority to take care of us. God loves us even as he disciplines us. He loves us. And God is teaching Nebuchadnezzar something as well. Nebuchadnezzar, who wanted nothing to do with God, who had no reverence for God whatsoever, is brought to the place where he realizes God has intersected with my life through this dream. God obviously wants me to know him, Apparently, God thinks that he has all the authority and wants me to surrender to him. And that God is actually in charge of who gets what kingdom, when, and for how long. God is teaching everyone, including us today, to make sure that we make investments in the kingdom that is eternal and we don't settle for the kingdom that is temporary. Amen? Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to be confronted once again with the fact that what we see in the world around us is really only temporary. We need to be drawn to what is eternal again and again. Father, we need by your grace to be shaped by your word in such a way that we put our hope and our investments in the things that will last. Lord, if there's somebody here who's wrestling with your authority, they're like Nebuchadnezzar, they, they are in a position where they haven't considered the authority that you have over them, God, I invite you to use your word to open up their hearts and to speak directly to them today. God, that you would minister your love, your salvation, the hope of your kingdom, the hope of eternity that you would remind them that the rock who came down and crushed the statue is also the same rock that hung upon a cross to purchase forgiveness and freedom, to make us your own. It was raised from the dead in order that we might have a new life and be a part of your kingdom forever. Lord, let your word be at work in the lives of your people and of all those that would call that you would call unto yourself. We ask this in the name and for the glory of Jesus. Amen. Mm-hmm.